Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number four, Le Petit Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, a.k.a. The Little Prince. Who are you? We are roses. My rose is just a common rose. But she told me she was the only one of her kind in the whole universe. But she is not a common rose. She is your rose. It is the time that you have devoted to her that makes your rose so important. She's my rose. You must return to her. Oh no, you're gonna cry? My taming you has done you no good at all. Let me make you a present of a secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is the bane of existence of all middle schoolers who hate reading because it's about books and literature. And each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've both read and we, at the end of the episode, determine whether it is worthy of its place in canon or its reputation. Along on this flight of fancy with us as we hop from one asteroid to another is the beauty to my beast, Tom Penneries. <laughs> it's true! Remember on the Twitter, I said that basically you're, you're, I'm the brains of the whole situation oh. and you're the, you're the looks of the, of the show. I'm the looks? <laughs> yes! We're doomed. You're the face of oh God, we're doomed. I have a face for radio. <laughs> That's why this is an audio podcast and not a video podcast. Yep. Oh. <laughs> How are you? Hey, I am well. 
just well, I just got off of a uh, a particular class, an eighth grade class, in fact, that I was talking about the Aeneid and saying how the Aeneid's purpose, one of its purpose, was to be a national text for you know students at that time because up till then they had just been reading you know Greek. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and I said, mm. it'd be like reading, you know, having a French text as our national text, like The Little Prince. And then I hear, oh, that was a terrible story. I hate that. My dad made me read it. And so I thought, well, how fitting, because I'm about to talk about it tonight. So, <laughs> so nice, aren't they? Could you believe I it? Just, I know. I just get the smug, like... I'll ask a question about the book or I'll mention something and that, that smug look on their kids' faces like, I didn't read this and ha ha ha, you're up here like, you're going to bomb and you're going to look embarrassed because you're the teacher yeah. and nobody read. And I'm just like, and, or sometimes I'll call on them and be like, I don't know. And I'm like, advanced English. They get the advance yeah. for some, I don't know, for some purpose. So, so I, I've been there. I've yeah. been there. And it's, and it's a frustrating endeavor. Well... We're doing The Little Prince, and uh, we're, we're, of course, going to get into this because at first glance, you think it's a children's book, but I think it's certainly much more. And originally, it was French uh, because the author is French, and it's been translated uh, into several languages, and I think that goes to show how important it potentially is, not to spoil the rest of our episode, but there's an important question that sort of hovers over our discussion tonight tom are you ready for this question sure it's actually a personal question so i hope you're willing to put yourself out there are you do you see a hat or do you see an elephant inside of a boa constrictor i see a snake with a lump a snake with a lump yeah i guess it does look like an elephant yeah but the reason i see a snake is because i can see the eye and the mouth on the snake Uh uh-huh and the snake is, and it is, and it is the what would be the bill of the hat, uh-huh. I guess, or the brim of the hat. The brim yeah. of the hat is uneven. Okay. So I don't see a hat. I see, I see a snake. Okay. So listeners, that is swallowed something. Listeners, now Tom is saving face a little bit. I want to draw back the curtain because Tom and I are friends. I earlier this month, I don't know, I, I texted Tom and I said, Tom, can I ask you a personal question? So usually people's hackles are up because they don't know what it's going to be. Yeah, it's, like, you, you just like to make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I know. But he said, sure. And so I thought, okay. And so I asked Tom, do you see a hat or an elephant in a bow constrictor? And he said, to be honest, a dirt mound. It does so look he's, like a dirt he's mound. changed his answer. But uh, we can allow that going forward. Now, I will say I didn't see an elephant inside of a boa constrictor, but I didn't see the hat either when they were saying, like, why be scared of a hat? I was looking. I had a flip back. And I'm like, that doesn't look like a hat. You have you do have to look closely with the eye because without seeing the eye or like, what is that? And there's, of course, a connection with the above drawing because you see the boa constrictor eating the uh, what looks like a pig. Mm-hmm. Is it, what is that? Isn't that? Oh, it's a wild, a wild beast. So it's probably like yeah, a like a boar beast. or something. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but those are actually my. Uh, we, we'll probably talk about this later. But I really love that. Just that first section and and seeing when he redraws it to add the detail and prove his point of seeing that elephant inside the boat constrictor makes me laugh. But anyway, that, so that was a little side just to, to get us started. So we're going to do The Little Prince. I think that's enough intro to the book that we need, though I yeah. will go back and, and give more context 
context of the book and, and the, the history of the author because they're very much entwined with one another um, like we've seen. It seems like with, well, perhaps with the, no, I guess even Steinbeck. The weird thing about this show, Tom, I don't know if you've noticed, but all of the books that we've picked have had some like degree of connection with the other books that we've picked. I guess so. And, and Have ha- you like ever noticed this? I mean, we had the memoir in the previous one with uh, I know the Cage Bird uh, yeah. things, and then remember that the Glass Menagerie was a memory play, and and yes. it, it just like goes back, and now you have this, which is based off of a real life experience, and remember that Tennessee Williams' life sort of bled into that play, and of course, my Andrew. So there's all these connections. I don't know how long we can keep that up. I know because certainly not purposeful. I was going to say because we were not doing it on purpose. <laughs> no, it's not. So maybe now that I said it um it's not going to happen anymore mm-hmm. but uh what is your history with the little prince this is kind of funny because you mentioned the little prince and, and this is a book i had seen before this is the first time i've ever actually read it but this is one of those moments when you when you start to get old like i am uh, <laughs> where you swear you remember something from your childhood and it's verified and you're like thank god i know now i know i'm not insane when you mentioned it i think and i might have said this in the last episode i remember saying something to the extent of wasn't that like an anime show on Nickelodeon or something mm. and and I and for years I would see the little prince and I would have this tune in my head and I don't think I had the lyrics so I was like the little prince in outer space or something and I'm like why do I remember this and after you announced the book I went you know I I went on Wikipedia, as you do, and <laughs> it was adapt. It's been adapted. It's mm-hmm. been adapted into like cartoon movies and things, but it was adapted as like a in a sense or, or co opted by an anim- Japanese animation company in the early eighties for Nickel, and it was shown on Nickelodeon. And he had a he had typical kind of messed up, crazy, spiky Japanese anime hair, like mm-hmm, early eighties, mm-hmm. like something you see on one of the characters of Ultron. Um, <laughs> A it looked like I think it was like a white scarf and like a periwinkle sort of onesie. I, I guess they're supposed to look like pajamas or something. Mm-hmm. And it would and and I found a clip on YouTube and he was flying through space or something. I didn't watch the whole episode, but I was like, and then I had to remember. I then I had to think back. How do I remember seeing this because I didn't have cable as a kid? And I think that one of my t- I don't think I I may have seen it at a friend's house, but I'm pretty sure I saw it in school, and it was either on a videotape that one of my teachers just threw in one day to keep us quiet for a little while, or maybe there was cable at the school in one of the classrooms and we watched it, but I do remember seeing it at some point in between showings of various episodes of Inspector Gadget, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and that after-school special starring River Phoenix when he plays the (gasps) dyslexic kid. So, but yeah, so that was, that was my memory. I was like, and when you, when I, when I finally got off my duff and, uh, verified this for, for the sake of this podcast, I was like, I'm not crazy. I re- I'm remembering that correctly. So once again, my Bailey-esque memory strikes again. Yeah. Uh, but I can't make, I can't make this come back to Superman, however. Uh, but no, this, there might be a connection. Who knows? There may be, but this is the only time I've ever read it. I never, um... I want to say that in my high school, if you took the upper, upper level French classes, you ended up reading Mm -hmm. this in French, Mm -hmm. but I took enough French to graduate high school and then stopped, which came back to bite me in the rear end in college because I took the foreign language placement test at Loyola and wound up having to take two semesters. Oh, boy. 
So, yeah, but this is my first time reading it for reals. Okay, sounds good. And this is also, yeah, my first time reading it as well. I had been aware of it. I don't know if perhaps the stigma of it being a a children's book, like, pushed it further, you know, or farther on my shelf than than I realized it it was. I had actually given it as an end-of-the-year book award to one of my favorite Latin students uh, who was with me. I taught her three years, and uh, it was good because she also doubled uh, in French, so it was like a nice little crossover gift, I guess. So I gave her the Latin translation of it. So uh, yeah, those are my connections with it. I didn't see, though I saw the, uh, once you told me about it, I I looked up on YouTube and I had every intention of watching it, that the little anime film that you're talking about, because it's only like 22 minutes. Yeah, it was a half hour show. It's very short. Uh, I just did not, I did not get to that. I did actually end up watching, I guess it's a Netflix original film that came out in 2015 by Mark Osborne. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Bridges just as like a, a big name is is the old airman that's okay. actually telling the story, um, and it's really nice because there are different animation styles for like uh, the present time when he's telling the story, and then like when you see the little prince, it's mm. a, it's actually using paper animation, so we kind of talk about claymation, so it's very similar to that. And there's a nice foil because you have this little girl and she, she has a strained relationship with her mother, and so it's it's um, it's it's actually a really good film, which I would. Uh, recommend and, and they keep very faithful to the actual to the actual story uh, and those are the clips and the music that I'm using throughout this episode if you ever wonder where it's coming from so my history is yeah this is brand new for me as well I'm wondering how often we're gonna say you know we have no history this is our history <laughs> with this uh, with the show but there will be some times I think that we will uh, will pop up yeah. well let me give some context and background to our author Antoine de Saint Exupéry and and then, you know, about his connection with the book as well. So he was born in 1900 in Lyon, France, and he would consider himself a pilot above all else. For 20 years, he flew everything from cartography missions to commercial airlines, and flying occupied a significant place in his philosophical essays and fantasy writings as well. So he actually began writing The Little Prince during World War II, and we'll talk about that because some of the imagery and symbolisms begins to to flood into this uh, little book. Right after Germany's invasion of France uh, forced him to give up aviation and flee to New York. The novel's nostalgia for childhood indicates both uh, Saint-Exupéry's homesick desire to return to France as well as his hope of returning to a time of peace. He also is trying to stress a message of love and compassion throughout, which I think we see a lot with uh, the fox, those interactions, as well as the rose. Some of the story of The Little Prince uses events taken from Saint-Exupéry's own life. Uh, in 1939, he wrote his uh, account of his aviation adventures in a book called uh, Wind, Sand, and Stars. And he actually recollects a crash landing that he was forced to make in the Sahara Desert, which happens in The Little Prince. And then he wanders across the desert. He has a number of hallucinations, including an encounter with a fennec, which is a type of desert sand fox that, of course, bears a striking resemblance to the fox that the little prince encounters while he's wandering as well. So Antoine de Saint-Exupéry probably saw himself in some of his characters, uh, both the narrator, who is obviously a pilot, and the little prince as well. Many researchers actually believe that the prince's vain rose was 
perhaps inspired by his Salvadoran wife, Consuelo de Saint-Exupery, with the small home planet being inspired by her small home country, El Salvador, which was also known as the land of volcanoes. And as uh, we'll go through, but of course, as you may recall, uh, his little planet, the little prince's little planet has two volcanoes. One is dormant and one is like semi-dormant, like it could spew up at any time. We don't know. So that's just some background that, of course, life imitates art, as the phrase goes. I uh, found it interesting how much he he worked his own life into this book because you don't – I mean I'm not used to that out of children's mm-hmm. literature, you know? Yeah. I found it really interesting at the back of my book. It also gives uh, a bit of a biography about him. And at the very end, which in my book is probably like the same book as yours. <laughs> we got it from the same library system. But it says that later in 1943, so he like throughout World War II, he's like flying and, you know, he's helping the allies. And it says later in 1943, Saint-Exupéry rejoined his French air squadron in northern Africa. Despite being forbidden to fly because he was still suffering physically from his earlier plane crashes, Saint-Exupéry insisted on being given a mission. And and on July 31st, 1944, he set out from Borgo, Corsica to overfly uh, occupied France and he never returned. So I guess in death, uh, he also had that plane crash. But I think yeah. it's just an amazing story of – I think that goes to show what type of person he is, the fact that he's injured. You know, I we can get into like heroism. I mean it, it's – yeah. Because we won't really get about into that potentially from this book, but I just think that's amazing that someone so injured is like, I'm, I'm just going to get back in there. Mm-hmm. And I think probably that's where he felt like he belonged is like in the air because I think certain people are like that, that they feel like the earth is not necessarily for them, but they will find so much that the sky and space is like their home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which there's, I think goes with, you know, the little prince. Well, there's that idea of um... – how some people treat whatever they do for a living or feel whatever they do for a living is more of a calling mm-hmm. and less than of a occupation. Mm, yeah. And you hear that about, you know, and, and I can certainly see a pilot of, of his, okay. of his nature, especially during that era mm-hmm. when, when that, uh, the, that 1920s, to 1930s, uh, into the forties pre-war era, like between interwar era is like this sort of, golden age well i don't know if it's the golden age of aviation but it's it's this like romanticized age of aviation because you have Lindbergh and you have amelia Earhart and and you have this image of the flying ace you know the mm-hmm. the daredevil pilot the one who's going to make that tr- the next big trip and things like that and um so there was there's a romanticism and a celebrity about that so i can totally understand him being bitten by this bug mm-hmm. to to always you know always be flying and then um you know but you know again um you know it's uh you know Jim Jim Kirk they made him an admiral they put him behind him a desk and you know all he wanted was the enterprise mm-hmm. yeah and i don't perceive him i mean i'd i'd be interested to hear what you thought but i don't perceive our author as being uh someone who enjoys war either and i mean not to say that anyone no. who's fighting in a war enjoys it but i think some people enjoy the action potentially more than others he seems like sort of a a gentle soul like virgil is sort of a gentle soul cuz he 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 prefers you know writing about nature but then augustus is like you need to write this epic and he's like oh and you can kind of tell he's uncomfortable <laughs> well you could tell he's uncomfortable but it just seems like you know he feels um our author here descent exupery like feels comfortable in an airplane and also writing because this is not his only work um yes. but that's just my perception of him 
No, I, I agree with that. Okay, well, let me give a brief, I guess, a plot synopsis. Or I don't know if that's brief or not. You can decide. Uh, so the narrator, who happens to be an airplane pilot, crashes in the Sahara Desert. The crash badly damages his airplane and leaves the narrator with very little food or water. As he is worrying over his predicament, he is approached by the little prince, a very serious little blonde boy who asks the narrator to draw him a sheep. The narrator obliges, and the two end up becoming friends. The pilot learns that the Little Prince comes from a small planet that the Little Prince calls Asteroid 325, but that people on Earth call Asteroid B612. The Little Prince took great care of his planet, preventing any bad seeds from growing and making sure it was never overrun by the baobab trees. One day, a mysterious rose sprouted on the planet, and the Little Prince fell in love with it. But when he caught the rose in a lie one day, he decided that he could not trust her anymore. He grew lonely and decided to leave. Despite a last-minute reconciliation with the rose, the prince set out to explore other planets and cure his loneliness. While journeying, the narrator tells us the little prince passes by neighboring asteroids and encounters for the first time the strange, narrow-minded world of grown-ups. On the first six planets the little prince visits, he meets a king, a vain man, a drunkard, a businessman, a lamplighter, and a geographer, all of whom live alone and are overly consumed by their chosen occupations. Such strange behavior both amuses and perturbs the little prince. Uh, he does not understand their need to order people around, to be admired, and to own everything. With the exception of the lamplighter, whose dogged faithfulness he admires, even though it's absurd, uh, the little prince does not think much of the adults he visits, and he does not learn anything useful. However, he learns from the geographer that flowers do not last forever, and he begins to miss the rose he has left behind. At the geographer's suggestion, the little prince visits Earth, but he lands in the middle of the desert and cannot find any humans. Instead, he meets a snake who speaks in riddles and hints darkly that its lethal poison can send the little prince back to the heavens if he so wishes. The little prince ignores the offer and continues his explorations, stopping to talk to a three-petal flower, which I figured was a cactus, and to climb the tallest mountain he can find, where he confuses the echo of his voice for conversation. Reminds me of Ovid's uh, Echo and Narcissus. Eventually, the little prince finds a rose garden, which surprises and depresses him. His rose had told him that she was the only one of her kind. The prince befriends a fox who teaches him that the important things in life are visible only to the heart, that his time away from the rose makes the rose more special to him, and that love makes a person responsible for the beings that one loves. The little prince realizes that even though there are many roses, his love for his rose makes her unique and that he is therefore responsible for her. Despite this revelation, he still feels very lonely because he is so far away from his rose. The prince ends his story by describing his encounters with two men a railway switchman, and a sales clerk. It is now the narrator's eighth day in the desert, and at the prince's suggestion, they set off to find a well. The water feeds their hearts as much as their bodies, and the two share a moment of bliss as they agree that too many people do not see what is truly important in life. The little prince's mind, however, is fixed on returning to his rose, and he begins making plans with the snake to head back to his planet. The narrator is able to fix his plane on the day before the one-year anniversary of the prince's arrival on earth and he walks sadly with his friend out to the place the prince landed the snake bites the prince who falls noiselessly to the sand that could be key right there 
The narrator takes comfort when he cannot find the prince's body the next day and is confident that the prince has returned to his asteroid. The narrator is also comforted by the stars, in which he now hears the tinkling of his friend's laughter. Often, however, he grows sad and wonders if the sheep he drew has eaten the prince's rose. The narrator concludes by showing his readers a drawing of the desert landscape and asking us to stop for a while under the stars if we are ever in the area and to let the narrator know immediately if the little prince has returned. Have you seen the little prince, Tom? No. <laughs> I thought you left the goal. <laughs> that no, was sorry. so sad. I, I was sitting I was sitting back in my chair so that I wasn't breathing into the mic so that oh, you could okay. read. Whew, I thought you left me. No, I haven't um, left you. Okay. I would never leave you, Stella. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. So first, an important question, and also my mother, who suggested this book to me to suggest, was like, I talked to her today, and she's like, I hope you liked it. And I said, I think it'll be okay, but I'll let you know. Did you like this book, Tom? I did like it. Oh. Um, it was... It was different. Oh, cool, yeah. It was nothing. It was not like much of anything I'd read. Uh-huh. Uh, even as a kid. I, and I was trying to, in your head, you kind of make comparisons to other works of literature. So I was trying to, I was trying to kind of equate it to something like where, where would this be on the bookshelf, sort of, so mm. to speak. And mm-hmm. I would say like, I don't know, there, there are, but even, even Charlotte's Web has, has less of a, has a fantasy element to it, but not, you know, it's so grounded in reality. This is almost like a magical, I don't even know if magical realism is the right term to use here. Mm. I enjoyed it, but the the interesting thing was, is that I know, I know a number of people who really do love this book. Mm-hmm. And I was worried that I wouldn't like it because <sighs> I would, because I wouldn't, because when I hear people, the people I have heard talk about the book, it seems very precious to them, mm. and it's not a. I didn't feel that way, mm-hmm. you know, that I would cherish this and and stuff. And maybe it's because I, I'm almost forty and I'm reading this book for the first time. Mm-hmm. But I, I did enjoy it. I thought it was really well written, and I I thought it was. Um, uh, but it was very um, light mm-hmm. and deliberately dreamy. And uh, it took a little bit of getting into because I was trying to acclimate myself to kind of that world of the the way the book is set up and stuff. But no, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really liked it as well. I would agree that I think perhaps it's different than other, you know, quote unquote children's books because yes. I think we're going to have to distinguish what this really is, uh, which is going to be hard, I think. Um, and then, of course, you know, adult books as well. I, I, I just think it's like in this weird limbo between the two of them. And I think mm-hmm. that's what makes it really unique. For whatever reason, I thought I had like this weird image of what this book was about. And I always saw, you know, this little guy, this blonde hair on this mm-hmm. asteroid. Yeah. And I never really thought that this is what this particular book was about. <laughs> I don't know if I just look at the cover I'm like this you know okay uh-huh the, co- the, the cover the cover and the the the, the illustration of the cover and mm-hmm. the typeface of the cover yeah. with the little star for the eye suggest it's a jaunty french version of yeah. like are you my mother or something <laughs> you know like yeah, but, yeah. oh I'm it's clearly a bedtime story yeah, yeah like that kind of yes it's the petit prince. <laughs> the petit prince. Yes, absolutely. 
And even reading it, I think it has a bit of a misnomer. Like, clearly it's about the little prince, but I almost wish, like, our our little pilot, you know, had a bit of a name, you know, in the title with him. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's, it's not about the pilot, but I think... Or like the little prince in his travels. But what really I what I really love about it is all the people that the little prince interacts with, because I think, mm. you know, it's not just about him, but it's all the people like the it all starts with the it, well, really, it starts with this little planet and how dear it is to him. And then the rose and then, you know, the different people he visits and then the pile and this it's all these interactions with the people that I almost feel like it's a, a misnomer because it's almost as if it's this little tale of this, you know, this child uh, as he like goes along or whatever he does. But it's really yeah. about, you know, him learning about many things, you know, what's precious, what's important, and then his interactions with diff- different people. But I, I did really enjoy this. I think that's, um, uh, well, this is special, I guess I should. I was about to like reveal our end question. <laughs> Oh, okay. So now that we got that out of the way and my mother is breathing a sigh of relief, (laughs) (laughs) I just texted her and said, Tom liked it. So um, (laughs) I think perhaps besides, you know, is this an adult book or a child book? I think the illustrations is a really important question to ask. Uh, And you and I, even though we try to keep this in a different continuity, this podcast in a different continuity than, you know, what else we do, we really love comics. And, you know, 50% of comics, if not more, is the fact that it's a visual medium. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could either say that the images are enhancing what is being written or vice versa, that the words are enhancing uh, what's being drawn by the the artist. So how did the illustrations in this particular book, because again, I wasn't sure what I was going to get. I thought maybe it would just be words or it could be all images. It was actually wordier than I was expecting because I didn't think it was going to be as dense, I guess, with quotations as it was. I was pleasantly surprised. How did the illustrations, how did you feel uh, they enhanced the story if, if they did at all? I had a note here and I wrote the words a sense of perception mm-hmm. because in my mind they are the illustrations drawn by the narrator and and I wonder if he is showing us what he perceived and leading us down like a path of, of a particular perception, a particular sense of a reality versus or, I don't know another version of it, mm-hmm. and perhaps that has, and perhaps that's why he starts with the illustrations of the boa constrictor and the elephant. Mm-hmm. You know that that he wants us to suspend disbelief. Like as a reader, you're you have a willing suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. and the author has the task of keeping that going. You know, we often use the phrase um, being taken out of the story to describe a moment in a movie or a book or something where you kind of you 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 kind of disengage and you you have a, a different view of the story because it something happened to to, to to disengage you and, and, and you you are no longer as invested in it because of something that, that happened. But at the same, like here, he's almost like luring us in with this idea, you know, this sort of allegory of the cave type of thing, mm. with with this boa constrictor mm-hmm. illustration, which just looks silly <laughs> to be honest with you <laughs> on the surface. And then, you know, you 
a skeptic might be like, well, did, you know, a skeptic might ask the narrator, this, say the narrator, this really didn't happen. This is all in your head. But leading with the story has us kind of throw that aside for the duration of the, like, we want to believe this happened to this person. I know it's a work of fiction, but oh, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we want to believe that this happened to the narrator, that he wasn't yeah. just basically telling us a story of some fever dream he had because he was, you know, lost in the mm-hmm. desert with not much food or water. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You said right off the bat, I think, you know, what it is because the narrator originally like drawing was his passion and what's what he wanted to do. And then it was sort of stamped, stamped down by adults. So I think at the very beginning and, and honestly, like like this entire book, I think is like so many layers that you can like sift through of like double meanings, you know, on the very, on the surface, if we take this to be a children's book, I think that children are potentially more engaged with images. And so I think that on one level and a very superficial level, it, it has that purpose because, you know, it has like, oh, look, you know how you, you read and then you flip the book around and you do a little circuit like for a kindergarten class. You know yeah. what I'm talking about. You yeah, have a kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, on a very superficial level, you certainly have that. But I think this is also amazing just for the, the pilot narrator because – he loved drawing, and then it was stamped down, and then you have, you know, the little prince. You finally found him. And then he – it's it's funny because at the beginning, he's sort of annoyed. I think he's a little irks because he's trying to figure out how to fix his plane. You've got this kid asking him to draw, you know, a picture <laughs> of a sheep, and it's also been a while. And then you have these sheeps, and, you know, the, those don't, don't work. They don't work. And then you've got, okay, fine, fine. And he draws the box and like, this is exactly what I wanted. So I think that's absolutely correct. So it's partially, you know, his him, his imaginings of what the planets looked like because he's never been there. And I was also looking at that one image of the little prince, like when he's making the, I was going to say pact, but it sounds like a suicide pact, The um, <laughs> which is not, that'll be a question at the end with the, uh, like the deal, I guess, with the snake. And um, clearly that's from his imaginings as well, because if you remember, the, the pilot couldn't see him. Uh, yeah. But then there are ones where, you know, all the the prince is so detailed um, because he's, you know, he's seen him and he's talked to him. And so I, I feel like they really enhance. And, you know, there's always the argument of imagination. And, you know, would a story be better without images or with images? Because uh, if there are images already there, does it, you know, him, hinder or, or hamper your imagination from going forward of like, oh, I would like... I wonder what the little prince looks like, you know, just from the descriptive words. But for me, I actually like that there's a set image of him. And so now if I think of the little prince, I'm always going to think of this little guy with his spiky yellow hair and and his kind of sailor looking outfit. So for me, I think it enhances the story and it enhances it on several levels. And there are certain moments. I mean, there are actually like several pages that will go by without any images. So I think saint uses the images well because it's not mm. flooded throughout. It's not overwhelming. I think he picks images that focus on important plot points or uh, emotions that he really wants to, to get through, like first meeting the fox or when the prince sees the rose gardens because that's a big moment. He's like, oh, the rose light. You know, she's not yeah. the only one as well. So I think I, I think on many, many uh, levels that these uh, images work. Yeah, it's not like there are some children's books where there's an illustration maybe at the beginning and or at the end of a chapter and it's mm-hmm. and it's there. It's all they're always there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's so it the illustration is there to show something that happens in the book, but it's also there because that's the end of the chapter and that's where the illustration goes. Mm-hmm. There are others that uh, Beatrix Potter comes oh, to mind. Yes, absolutely. where there are illustrations right exactly where these things are happening, and they mm-hmm. they really do enhance the uh, the story of Peter Rabbit or whomever. Mm-hmm. And this does like he's very judicious. Mm-hmm. in in the illustrations and um and they also uh you know some of them take up a full page you know like toward the end um i think we have the same edition by the way i, I believe so toward you know or i you know toward the end you know they've got the um the, with the snake and the and then mm-hmm. the, uh and then you know him as he falls and there's the shot of him with the well but then then there are illustrations that make up maybe the beginning of a page and on page 24 and 25, where he's setting up the little thing for the rose, yep. they're just in the corner. And mm-hmm. so they don't – and actually, 23, 24, 25, the whole, the whole scene with the little rose, he's, they're all in the corners. And they just kind of um, – they you're right. They enhance it. They, they just they, – and they don't intrude. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that that many in many cases illustrations uh, can. Do you have a personal favorite illustration? I don't know. To be completely honest with you, I, I do. I do like the uh, just the, on page five. There's this mm-hmm. very regal looking prince. Oh yeah. And it's captioned here is the best portrait I managed to make of him later on, and I think that mm-hmm. goes back to the point I was making about how like. This is his perception of things, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just they're, they're all. I mean, I don't have one that's a, a particular a particular favorite. To be honest with you, uh, I, I like how they're. I just like in general how they're used and mm-hmm. um, and and how how they are. They're very gentle in a in a sense, absolutely, but, but not too cutesy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean. There are so many amazing ones. I, I like how cross he looks on 75 looking down at the snake, mm-hmm. um, just like his little eyebrows. Um, though that's kind of a, a bad, like, what it symbolizes is bad. But I just keep coming back to that elephant in the, the boat constrictor. Yeah. I don't know. It cracks me up because when I was reading it and he's talking about it and then he's like, I showed the grown-ups my masterpiece, and I asked them if my drawing scared them. And then they, what? Why is he scared of the hat? And then you see below. I just started cracking up because I just thought that's so amazing. That that's like a gifted kid. I don't know if that that was what was in that brown little dirt mound that you thought. I just thought, man, that poor guy. That his uh, gifts were wasted. Wasted. But he got to fly, so that works out. But I don't know. That that just really cracks me up. But I guess I'm a simple person. So there you go. <laughs> it's, it's very little kid, though. Yeah. He said he was six. It's very yeah. much the, like, my brain's working faster than my <laughs> fingers can draw. Yeah. So here's my illustration. And, Daddy, it's this long description. And I can tell you what happened. But on, But if you really take an objective look at it, it's... A dirt mound with the tail, and the, you know it's it's not yeah. it's not as as elaborate as your story is. Absolutely. So. And what's funny is the the prince gets him, which I think the aviator loves because 
when the prince first asks him to draw a sheep, he couldn't draw a sheep because number one, he stopped drawing. Yeah. And then so he draws, you know, the only two drawings he knows, and the prince starts yelling, No, no, I don't want an elephant inside of a boa constrictor. <laughs> so like he even gets it, which is great, I think, but I think it's, you know, being able to relate on a, a, a childlike level right there. Yeah. So I think we've been dancing around this question and it's just the idea of children and adults. And I'd like to look inside the book as well as outside of the book. So how does the story both differentiate between children and adults and also bring them together? So I guess we'll start with like the internal uh, book and then we'll ask about who the audience is for this book. And it might not both. So, I mean, if you feel like it only separates children and adults, then that's certainly possible. No, I think on some level it does, or at least superficially it seems to, in that the little prince is curious, Mm -hmm. and he's always questioning things, and he always wants to know, and all of the adults seem to be occupied with whatever they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So they don't have time for that curiosity or anything like that. And the narrator seems to, I don't know, remember what being a child was like eventually or mm-hmm. come to appreciate this point of view. But yeah, there's, um, it's like a wistfulness in this uh, in this in this story, um, I don't know if it's a longing to go back to childhood. If it's something to be said about oncoming adolescence and what you lose as you go into adulthood, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he does all these drawings and doesn't brush off what could be a hallucination. You know? Yeah. So there's something to be said about like, you know, how how they're very similar in that regard. That, you know, they're mm-hmm. they are they're seeing they're seeing the world a different way by the both of them by the end of the book. Yeah, I think a lot of it does come down to sort of perspectives, um, and how things are seen. I think it all you know, it all starts off with that little dirt mound. Uh, you know, the hat and the bow constrictor that Children, I think, are going to have more of an imagination potentially than adults will. Like they're just going to see what's right there, but children can yeah. see a little bit beyond that. I, I think we definitely see that uh, children in this, mean you know, represented by the little prince, is so inquisitive. But I think adults are just as inquisitive. If only we can see this in the aviator, and he, like this book, I think, sort of is on the line of like adult and child. Cause I think he still has like that childlike wonder, but he's in an adult body mm-hmm. because, you know, being an aviator is one who, you know, I, I think has a sense of adventure and, and wanting to find new places and things like that. Yes. And that's certainly part of what, you know, the little prince is like hopping about to see other places other mm-hmm. than his little, other than his little, uh, asteroid. But, you know, adults I think have like very serious business, because he gets really angry. He has that, like, one diatribe, which I think is the longest that he had ever t- talked about. You know, serious, you know, what's serious? When the aviator was saying how he it was serious, he needed to act serious and, like, fix his plane and everything. And, and mm. the little prince gets upset. But it's weird because I feel like he felt 
like on his asteroid, it was serious business, like tending, because he mentions the baobabs a lot. Yeah. Because if he let them grow at all, like he goes on about this in detail about if he let them grow at all, they would overtake his uh, planet. And there are two images. One of them, I think, is like eight elephants that are like on his little asteroid and that's like what they would be like and then the other one is like what a baobab would actually look like because it would just completely overtake it nothing else would grow at all and i think like clearly he has to do some work as well so i think that you know between children and adults you see that there's an imagination um and there's a sense of discovery and wonder and then adults are serious 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 but i think also children when it comes down to it recognize like there is an importance in certain matters and you need to take care of like what belongs to you or what you care about and and the the, the little princess thinking is very concrete in a, in in many ways like the his uh, and and i know we're going to be getting into that in a little more detail and i wrote down the question does the does the narrator's need to describe and illustrate correspond with the prince's need for concrete answers? Kind of getting back to the point I was making earlier about this whole idea of perspective and perception versus reality and and um, how maybe they aren't really that much different in, in that mm-hmm. regard. And I think you hit it really on the head with the comment about being an aviator because we were talking about in our um, about him and the uh, the author and the in the back toward the beginning of the episode that you know this was a a age of adventure and aviation you know um i mean i'm there is still the sense of adventure and aviation for quite a number of people especially people who fly small planes or who go into you know who see top gun one too many times and go into the navy <laughs> yeah. to be a pilot but aviation has also become air travel you know it's become uh, you know, I was just on a plane a couple weeks ago, and, and, you know, you don't really meet the pilot. The pilot's just, you know, this guy who maybe has a sense of humor. And y- you fly, you land, the, they, they pass out your, your pretzels or your chips or, and, your, and your coffee, and, and that's it. So there's really no adventure in, in flying because of commercial air travel. But back in the 1930s and 40s, you know, commercial air travel barely existed. You know, it existed uh, in some regard, but I mean, you're talking. You once again, you're talking about this this sense of adventure and exploration. So, yeah. What was your question again that you wrote down? Does it? It goes back to the point I was making earlier. Does the need to describe and illustrate on the part of the narrator correspond with the prince's need for concrete thinking slash answers? Mm. Which sounds like a bunch of edgy babble, but... No, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and it goes to my... I mean, one of my final questions on this was the fact that the prince is never satisfied with unanswered questions. Like, he will repeat the same question until you answer it, but he will not answer questions that he receives. Uh, so I think perhaps this might correspond with that one to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, okay, so we can put a pin in that and come back to that, although now he's, well, I mean, he's never satisfied with the answer. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah, that's basically. Yeah. Uh, no, I I don't know. What do you? I mean, we can tackle this question now. I mean, like, what do you think? You know, why is he never satisfied with unanswered questions? I, I think to a certain extent, it's the nature of a child and being inquisitive mm-hmm. and and you know wanting to learn and not wanting to be ignored. Uh, I think that's part of it. But the, the reverse, I think that one's easier. To, you know, why is he never satisfied with unanswered questions? It's yeah. just 
the reverse that's like, why, why won't he answer questions? And I find it so cute at the very end where, you know, the, the aviator is talking to him and all the prince is doing is blushing and like the blush gets deeper and everything. And then the aviator says something like, you know, I, I took a blush to mean yes. So, so you know, it's, mm. it's just interesting about that. And I feel like, you know, the prince is an enigmatic character, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Because he asks so much, but he tells nothing of himself. And so I don't know if this is like, you know, being personal feelings. Maybe part of it connects to the rose. I don't know if this is too deep thinking. But, you know, he obviously loves the rose so much. And he does so much for her. But at the same time, she has never said that she loves him. And so I wonder if there's like a feeling of being rebuked. And so like he doesn't want to put himself out there or be like too open to other people. And also uh-huh. at the same time, I, I you know, he's not going to stay on these other planets slash asteroids. So really how much of like a relationship he's going to make with these people. So I think it's almost like a dine and dash. Like I'm going to go in there and get to know as much uh, as I want to know. But you're probably not going to learn anything about me. And I'm just going to go off on my next little um, thing. Because he's looking for something. And I think he's going to know when he finds it, which is a friend. But yeah, I, yeah, I think the... The child thing, I, I think, answers so many questions. It's just the, it just perplexes me why he doesn't answer questions. Uh, but I still think it's pretty cute that he blushes at the end and, you know, the behavior yeah. he asks questions, just like a little kid. It's like, is he embarrassed? But no. Uh, but, but what do you think about this? This is, a, this, it's, a, it's a difficult question. Yeah, I, I, would the child be that afraid of his own vulnerability? I know, I, I don't want to lump all children into the same boat. Because there are some kids who don't really care <laughs> and are just like, hey, you're the new, let's be friends. But then there are kids who are very shy. But in a way, if he, if that, that whole idea of him not answering his own questions that are being asked of him and him, and uh, I guess we get to the rose in a minute, if he's putting up walls because he's felt like he's has had his heart broken before or something, that's a very that is that is both childlike and adult at the same time. Yeah. Because children will do that, but adults do it too. You know, yeah. it's it's I think it's just a natural human response, although he's from an asteroid, but um it's a natural response to not wanting to get hurt again if you've been hurt before and becoming suspicious of people if they have not treated you well. So what's your question again? What is my question again? <laughs> that one you you wrote down, but you didn't oh, put it in here. For the third I'm more time. of a visual learner, so I, yes. I wrote I'm it down. Well, I wrote it down today as I was taking, as I was finishing up my notes. Does the need for the narrator to describe and illustrate correspond to the prince's need for concrete thinking slash answers? Like the prince always needs definite answer. Yeah. He doesn't do ambiguity very well, and. On some level, you wonder. I was wondering if the if the illustrations are the author trying to make, so the narrator trying to make sense of everything that happened to him, or 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 showing that it's real somehow to show you that it's real somehow. It reminds me a little bit of the. Have you ever read Life of Pi? I have. Near the end, where like the island, the poison island. No, no, the very very end of the book where oh, he the tiger leaves him. Oh, after that. Oh, okay. He meets the two uh, Japanese insurance men from the company that owned the freighter, and he has told them this story. 
Right. And then he turns around and tells them a very quick, different oh. version of the story. Yes. Yep. And so that's, that's when I, I thought of that scene a few times. I'm not going to talk mm-hmm. too much about what, what that is. But uh, I thought, thought of that scene a few times while I was reading this and seeing the illustrations and thinking of, again, and not, not trying to think too much of what really happened versus what happened with the prince, because that's not the point of the story. But, you know, I was I was thinking of that. And then, like, you know, is is this he he needs this to be real on mm-hmm. some level? Maybe that's what that maybe that's what I'm going for. Like, he illustrates this. He describes it vividly because he deep down he knows he needs it to be real. Yeah. And to have happened to him. Yeah. For me, I was thinking a lot about Pan's Labyrinth. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's- I haven't. It's, okay. It's in my it's, list of movies to see. I can't remember what conflict it is taking place during, but it is a Spanish foreign film. And the girl uh, is certainly using like these fantastical adventures and, and creatures and everything for escapism, but there are moments- when like true or physical items from those adventures are popping up in the real world. So there's like, you're sort of battling with, you know, is this real or is this not? Mm. And again, you know, you said like, it's, this is a work of fiction, but you're also sort of thinking as you go through here, like, you know, is this real or was this all, oh gosh, I just had that song in my head. Is this the real life? Anyhow, or is it, you know, just a, you know, a hallucination to uh, being in the desert and, and all of that? So it could it could be. I think there could potentially be a correlation with that. Uh, I love how in a physical and, and tangible way mm-hmm. um, of his questions, I think, is the sheep. Because, you know, every sheep that the author is drawing, there's something wrong with it. And it's clearly the author's in a bit like he's practicing and trying to get back into yeah. it. And then he just gives up and he's like, the box. And he's like, that's perfect. Um, <laughs> so that's, you know, asking, like, draw me a sheep, draw me a sheep. And he's not satisfied with what's being drawn. Draw me a sheep, draw me a sheep. So, um, yeah. So I think there is a connection. I, I, I don't know if I could really expound as much as, uh, as you could or as well as you did. I would Sorry. like, oh, no, that's okay. Sorry, I had to ask you three different times, but I maybe we made a point about who the little prince is since yeah, I asked maybe. three different times. <laughs> maybe. I just, I just, I was apologizing for the awkward segue. <laughs> oh, we always so have awkward segues. That's true. Um, okay, so we talked internally about children and adults, mm-hmm. and I wanted to take a step back as readership and readers. Who do you think the audience is for this book, and is there a lesson for children to learn? this book i don't know i mean it could be both i mean it's okay emily middleton answer is that it's shelved in the juvenile section of the library (laughs) um to be purposefully ambiguous but at the same time there is something for adults to see about how children see the world and maybe there's a lesson maybe there's i mean this is such a he- I'm hedging here, like, or I'm just copping out here. Like, there's a lesson about growing up and seeing the world for what it is. <laughs> it's like half the books we read. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that 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 inherent difference and and the 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 exhilaration of discovery of discovering the world as a child, coupled with the disappointment of it, that both of which fuel you as an adult. Mm-hmm. In a sense, 
I agree that it's both. I will not take Emily Middleton away and say juvenile. I think because I, I, well, given the the remarks that were said with disdain in my B period class, I think perhaps we should <laughs> skip the juveniles and go from children to adults. But I think you know. It's just like with uh, these particular readings. I think there's the surface level reading, which is just full of adventure. It's a fun story. And I think for that, you know, that's the, the children are the audience there and the parents that are reading this story to their children at night or whenever. And I think because there are so many deeper levels to this, which we'll get into, you know, some of the symbolism and the figurative language, uh, it's also meant for adults. And it's coming at a time when, you know, potentially, you know, the the worst war that uh, the, well, I mean, I was going to say our nation, but why be selfish? Uh, the worst war that our nation, well, my gosh, the worst war that our cup. <laughs> world, world. Oh, my God. Humanity. It keeps, I just using synonyms. It's not what I'm looking for. The worst war, yeah, humanity works. World the war worst two. war that humanity, I think, has uh, faced. And he was looking for solace somewhere, and I think so. You know, adults would also probably find comfort in that in, like, this terrible time um, mm-hmm. and see the, the imagery and the symbolism that connects back to World War II. So I think it is both. And I think anyone who reads it can come at it from uh, different angles, certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. point. Well, I want to talk about one of the main characters, and uh, she may not seem main, but I feel like she drives the prince's actions, and uh, it's the Rose. Mm-hmm. I loved in the 2015 film that I watched, it was voiced by Marion Cotillard, who is a French actress anyway, so I guess she did the the original French as well as the dub, the English dub, so I gotcha. think that's great. But, you know, I just have a blanket, discuss the Rose's behavior, so just talk about what you think about her. Why does the little prince continue to love her? Does, you know, does she deserve that? And then is she similar to the inhabitants on the other asteroids? I'm going to take the second part of that question, the last part of that question first. Okay. I don't know if she's that similar. The other people on the asteroids seem to just not want to bother with him because they all have things to do uh, to varying degrees with her. You know, this is going to come off as really cynical, but there's something very manipulative about her. I would agree. And I I, wrote, I, I I scribbled across the top of my notes, is there a caretaker or role in his life? And I, mm. I, I didn't want to say mother because that's it's incredibly sexist to say that fathers can't be caretakers. Maybe in the context of the time and the society, the time it actually is a, it actually works as a question. But is there a caretaker for this kid? I, I wouldn't call her a mother. She's manipulative. There's there's a. If he were older, he'd be that. She'd be that ex girlfriend who keeps calling. The one, the one he keeps getting back with. You know, you dumped Gina. You dumped Gina two years ago. Why are you still going with Gina? She's 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 Caitlin Bree, but he's not an adolescent. He's a he's a kid. I wouldn't say it's abusive <laughs> because I don't I don't think it <laughs> is. But I think I, she no no. But I, that's why I said it sounds cynical of me to say manipulative. But I think she's very manipulative, and I wonder if the lesson he learns from her is deception mm. or how not how to deceive, but that people are capable of being deceived and manipulated. Mm. 
<laughs> Woo! Well, you're whack. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just cold and dead inside. Your, it's only because of your weird girlfriend comparison. Um, <laughs> I, wa because I watched way. I've watched way too many '80s teen movies, Stella. Or something. Yeah. So this is Pretty in Pink or something. Yeah. I thought at first I was agreeing with you because I thought you were saying that he was in the parenting role, but then you switched it on me because I sort of see him in in a caretaker role. Mm -hmm. I don't see anyone taking care of him because and you can see this with with how attentive he is to the entire planet. And then the, he has this new thing um, and he's so caring. You know, he gets that glass case. He gets the little shield. I completely agree with you that I think she is manipulative, um, especially her coughs, which like annoyed me. I don't know if a children's book should annoy someone, but just her cough, you know, and in order to inflict a twinge of remorse on him all the same. That was on page 24. So like she coughs as if, you know, to signal because there are a couple of times she coughs for like other reasons, but to make it seem like, you know, the draft is getting to her and she's getting sick. So to make him feel guilty, yeah, yeah. which I, I guess if that's where you're getting at with mother, sure he's not mother. his mother. You've got some other <laughs> issues, sir. You've got some other issues. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like this has been therapy with Stella and Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm still owed my five cents, sir, before you leave. Call me Lucy Van Pelt. I feel like he, he loves her unconditionally, um, even though he does feel, I think, those pains and, and, and the guilt and remorse and everything. He's doing everything possible he can. Um, and at certain, you know, at certain point, it does. Well, you can come back to that. I can't. When did this become the giving tree? Don't you think he loves her? I mean, he don't you think he loves her unconditionally? But yes, then he has it. Well, then why are you making fun of my response? I'm not. Keep going. Oh my goodness. I mean, he's he's concerned about a rabid animal attacking his rose. But then of course it it, it also I think is hard because he the love is not necessarily reciprocated. And it might be like the rose may love him, but she does not uh, outwardly show it or like verbally say it. Mm -hmm. And so I think perhaps it it, it I wonder if there's like a multi-layered love to this. Like there is, you know, just like the agape love um, or platonic love. But then I, I don't know if there's a romantic love here because, you know, it feels like he's being spurned to a certain extent. Or at least that's what I perceive from him. And then he's just like, I need to go. And then, of course, he realizes how much he misses the rose once he leaves. Which goes back to uh, Romeo and Juliet and, you know, something, something, the heart grows fonder. Isn't that from Romeo? <laughs> absence, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah, it doesn't or whatever, whatever. I don't know, but I know how much you love. Uh, oh, what is that, Romeo, Romeo? If I thou Romeo deny my, no, that's not it. It's Juliet. Romeo, Juliet. Romeo, if I thou Romeo. Yeah, but isn't there something about a rose? Um, something, a rose, something? a rose. No, he says to her, a rose by any that's name. That's what it is. A rose by any name. Smells so, so sweet. sweet. There you go. Okay. It's soft um, what light through yonder window breaks. See, you like Juliet it is the sun. Deep, deep, Arise, fair deep, sun, and kill thine envious moon. Wow. God, I hate that play. But yeah, I, I so I don't I don't even what am I relating to you? I guess that was the rose's behavior. Well, I you know, I think of that song, uh You walked out of uh something. Like you were walking out on a yacht. You know that song? No. Really? You're so vain. You oh, know, oh, 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 o
yeah, yeah. now I know that. <laughs> it reminds Carly me Simon. of Rose. And all the girls dreamed that they'd be your partner, they'd be your partner, and you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You're so Reminds me of the rose a little bit. And the fact that, you know, she lies, like her guilt trip leads her to a lie. Again on 24, she says, After dark, you will put me under glass. How cold it is where you live. Quite uncomfortable. Where I come from. But she suddenly no. broke off. She had come here as a seed. She couldn't have known any other thing of other worlds. Humiliated at having let herself be caught on the verge of so naive a lie, she coughed two or three times, see, in order to put the little prince in the wrong. There are some really negative <laughs> characteristics about the Rose, and he just loves her. And, and and I think it's one of those things. You know, my question was, why does the Little Prince continue to love her when she's clearly not showing any love for him? And I think it's just one of those things that love is a very mysterious emotion and feeling. And I think he just loves her unconditionally, despite all of these things that's that's happening. But he does need a break from her, as any human being born on an asteroid would. Does his returning to the Rose at the end come out of a sense of obligation and duty the same way the other men on the other asteroids are there doing their jobs? I feel like he, he – I honestly think that distance is what helps him because I don't think it happens until he meets the fox and he sees all those roses and the fox tells him the secret that he realized that he needs to get back to his Rose. Okay. But that's just me. What Do you, do you think so? It's very parent and child – I mean, I was really just joking about the ex-girlfriend thing, to be honest. No, with you. you were not. Um, he, although I will say, uh, no, I, it's just because while I was saying if he was an adolescent, it totally, it totally is that sort of relationship. But then again, there are those points where the nagging girlfriend could take place in the nagging mother. This sounds so misogynistic, but the idea that you know, children. Children are always always innocent. They know how to. They know how to get you. They know how to pull your strings. Um, some better than others. Uh, my child is not very good at conning people. <laughs> Please, the kid. The kid would be horrible at poker. But there is that sense of when you know when you are away from your kid for whatever reason. You might just be on vacation, and you there is that sense of like he comes back and or you come back and it does feel better. You know, you, you remember why, you know, you just kind of the, you know, you, you are reminded. Um, and there is that, yeah, you're right. The saying the absence does make the heart grow fonder. And I honestly don't know what that, what that is from. I, it may be Shakespeare, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, I think you do, you do have something there. I, I, I did bring up the thing about obligation because there's this sense of, and like you said, there's many layers to this book. Yeah. And there's this, he goes from asteroid to asteroid, and it's kind of like, go away, kid, you're bothering me. Mm, yeah. You know? And I don't, we don't know much about the prince aside from what he tells us. So we don't know if he's got parents or yeah. if he's an orphan. And. You know, is that are are those men representative of the father who doesn't have the time? Mm. You know, yeah. Child arrived just the other day. <laughs> There's another '70s song for you. <laughs> and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. <laughs> you know that one? I do. <laughs> you know, for some reason, Michael Bailey sings that a lot. <laughs> 
which is basically a song about dad never having time. Oh, that's sad. For his son. And in the end, he calls his son and his son doesn't have time for his father because he's too busy. Yeah. And it's and he ends up the last line of that song is and it's a hung up the phone. It occurred to me. I'm singing it like Bob Dylan. It's not a Bob Dylan song. It's a Harry Chapin song. As I hung up the phone, it occurred to me. My boy was just like me. He'd grown up just like me. And there's an ambiguity to that line. Because if you go back through the song, you can't tell if he's proud or if he's regretful. You know? And and so there's, you know, again, is is this, you know, is is there a... Does he grow up over the course of this book and then come to realize that he's, you know, taking care of something now or, or is he, you know, does he miss his mommy or something like that? So it's not exactly crystal clear. Well, this whole book is a little murky. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is why, you know, people have been discussing it for ages. It's raising more questions than it has answers. That might be true. Yeah. To be completely honest with you. I actually disagree with you about okay. um, the Rose not being like the other inhabitants. I almost see her as like an amalgamation of some of the other ones. Because of her vanity, you've got a bit of the, like the vain man. You have her like, com- not really commanding, but like slyly telling the prince to do stuff. Kind of like the king feels like, you know, all the stars are his subjects and things like that. Mm-hmm. I see like little bits of characteristics from the other people all on the Rose. But... Okay. I don't. I don't know if I could connect all of them because, like, the cartographer, like, what potentially does he have? But I. I don't know. That's just me. Because you said you didn't see that. Do you think the prince is at all like the uh, the inhabitants on the other asteroids? I think he is in his caretaking of the asteroid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. His obsession with the. Obsession. His fixation on the. <laughs> Word. But uh, on the Baobab, is that how you pronounce ba- it? Baobab. Baobab. The yeah, Baobab, Baobab tree, the Baobab, and and how he is fixated on not letting it grow too much because it's like basically like kudzu or ivy or something. It just overtakes. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh. <laughs> well, this is. We're it's glad like that the... you enjoyed this. Though. I guess <laughs> Stella Stella is going to walk off the show. It was just so funny <laughs> to hear you stutter on Baobab. The Baobab. The Baobab. Oh, I wasn't man. beatboxing. <laughs> it was funny. Other people will laugh too. I know it. Oh, God, you know how I leave everything in. Dub mix. Yeah. His obsession with the His fixation on the Obsession Fixation Obsession Fixation Obsession, fixation. Obsession. But, uh, Boabab? Baobab? The Baobab tree? The Baobab? 
Obsession, fixation. Baobab, the Baobab tree, the Baobab. Obsession, fixation. Baobab, the Baobab tree, the Baobab. His obsession with the... His fixation on the... His obsession with the... Fixation on the but, uh, Whew. okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> whew, I agree with you, Tom. That's nice. <laughs> Do you regret that we're still that we're doing this? No, oh, okay. Okay, well, we'll move on to a more serious <laughs> question. It have to be a serious question. I just... Uh. Uh, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of the, the bow, 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 babs, I want to talk bow, about... Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> wow. Dang this is going to be a cool thing, too. Blue moon. Well, that was a brown note. <laughs> so... Story. <laughs> this story is filled with symbols and metaphors. If you didn't know people, so there are too many to, to go over one by one. But I did want to at least, you know, mention the baobabs could potentially symbolize. I don't want to say like they definitely do. Could potentially symbolize unpleasant things in one nature, in mm -hmm. one's nature. So the idea of like you want to root it out before it takes hold and gets bigger, and then as an adult, like you're just this potentially bad person. But it also has a dual meaning potentially again for nazism right that Ooh. it starts off small and started growing yes. and also spread and, and took root and took hold and things like that i also think about like nazi youth that they're like you know like these young men would or young women yeah. um you know could be like pleasant in their youth and then all of a sudden they're like i'm going to serve my country and then before long they're like in this like very uh terrible cycle and and what they're doing and then, you know, you have the stars as well, which is different. It means something different to, you know, each of the characters, right? It, it could be something to own, like the rich man. It could be something to command, like uh, the king. It could also be like a symbol for just expo exploration as well, you know, for the aviator looking up or, you know, um, the little prince as well. So anyways, all that to say that there are symbols and metaphors everywhere. So my question is, why does Saint Exupéry choose to tell the story in such figurative language? Because he's French. Yeah. Um, you know, I that that metaphor because the 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 trees 
the this sort of Nazism starting with this seed mm-hmm. and, and growing essentially like a plague or a, or a or an infection, a blight, if you will, and and choking out all that was all that is good, or trying to choke out all that is good, and try to choke out all that was unique or different. Because like when in the illustration of the of the trees on on the planet that he describes, like, you know what'll happen. There, they are. It's like the entire asteroid is them. You know, there's yeah. nothing. There's nothing else. It does not coexist with anything. Mm-hmm. And it's a great metaphor, symbolism, literary device. <laughs> so yeah, and, and the idea that something this this small, this evil. Um, although I don't know if evil's evil's not an extreme word to describe Nazism. Um, it, I don't yeah. know if it's if it's what what he's. I don't know if, if the Baobabs themselves are evil, but you know that's that sort of negativity. I mean, you're projecting onto the outside world like that is evil is a great way. The way it, it spreads like that, like an infection or a blight, and then like the I don't know darkness or the negativity or the or the the cynicism. You know the ooh, I get to quote my favorite movie. When you grow up, you, when you grow up, your heart dies. Type of thing. Mm. You know that that idea that as you get further and further along in life, you know you you lose something along the way, and and things become you know less exciting, and you lose a sense of wonder. And you know, you just goes back to what you were saying about about him as a pilot. You know, maybe he never lost that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're you're right. Maybe that's a little bit critical of that. You know, represents that in some way that that what overtakes you as as you grow up. And I think potentially it also goes back to to our, you know, one of our first questions about you know who the audience is for this book. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if he really ever set out for it to be like uh, a straight up children's book. I think he always had an intention for what it evolved in. And I'm almost I I keep sort of thinking about C.S. Lewis as well and and his Chronicles of Narnia. Uh And, uh, you know, at at the surface, they are, you know, children's tale, but also there's lots of uh, Christian imagery and everything. And that's again, he's writing. He's like a contemporary to sent exuberate because that's both wait yeah that's world war ii um so so there's some similarities there so i think you know in this terrible time again like i said you know world war ii being a bad time i think taking solace in like this really wonderful and imaginary world like literally probably being a form of escapism but i think he doesn't want to escape so much as to neglect or forget you know what's actually going on so I think he wants parts of those because there are, I think, some dark moments here, like the Baobabs. Like it looks fantastical to see that one image of like these huge trees just like overtaking his little asteroid. But when you think about it, like his asteroid would be like destroyed. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't root them out after that. And so to think about that and connect with you know Nazism and the fact that like if we can't get rid of them, like they're going to take over the world. Like that's a really frightening idea. Yeah. And yeah. I think for for adults living at that time could certainly see that and hopefully, you know, see glimmers of hope throughout this novel. And then for children, I think parents can be thankful and hopeful that, you know, children like we prevented this from happening or like we're we're protecting you like that. So I, I think mm-hmm. It, it goes back to, you know, having this mixed audience of uh, adults and children. I think it goes to him and his personal, uh, you know, being involved in World War II, looking to go back to a time of peace. And again, you know, my perception of him as being sort of a, a quiet and, and peaceful soul, I, I think it all goes to uh, back to him. 
Yeah, and these aren't trite little lessons that you would learn from fairy tales or um, or like Beatrix Potter or something, where the value you might get out of them as an adult is reading them to a child. But you know, the lessons are more complicated. Like you know, like you just I don't even really need to add too much to what you just said. Because mm-hmm. and and you've, we've both noticed. I mean, having being at opposite ends of our thirties right now, you and I witnessed and read and watched a lot of entertainment that's that's supposedly well is geared toward children yet that becomes classic or becomes long lasting because of the connections it also has with an with a more mature audience oh, a number of pixar films like inside out or some of the television shows that are on now that you know, really do have a much deeper meaning than the than the action and stuff you see on on uh, on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, they're kids' shows. They're on like Cartoon Network and Disney XD. Right. You know, we're not talking. They're not The Simpsons or something, or some adult cartoon or something like that. So that's that's one of the real strengths of the book is that it 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 doesn't shy away from being complicated. And yet the complexity is so subtle in some regard. Well, we're starting to wind down now. And mm-hmm. we're getting into the sad part of the episode. Yeah. So one of my sad questions is about the prince going home. Or wanting, I should say, rather than the action. He has a friendship with the pilot. And to a certain extent, I think that's all the prince ever wanted was to have you know, a legitimate friend that there'd yeah. be you know, love on either side. So he has his friendship. Why does the prince want to return home if he has this friendship with the pilot? I don't know. Tom, stop saying that answer. I, it's, <laughs> he's, no, he's just like, he's found what he came for and he's done. And now he can go back to, he can go back home and return to all of his like he's found him like has he like whatever quest he's been on has completed and now he can go back home. I swear there's a biblical allegory here and I can't remember it off the top of my head. Biblical allegory. Like a like a story, yeah, like there's something that from I'm thinking of something but my my memories of Sunday school are hazy of and I don't because I don't want to say it's the prodigal son because that's not necessarily the case. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I was sworn there was an older story involving a son returning home have, after having gone and discovered the world. But I might be mistaken. But, you know, they, in some way, there are there are a lot of stories about, you know, somebody going out and finding themselves and discovering what they need and then kind of feeling satisfied. Maybe he feels satisfied by what he found and now he's ready to go home and, and return to his obligations. And yeah. But he's not – I don't know if he – I see him as satisfied if only because I feel like it's a very sad scene at the end. Mm. And it's not like he's happy like, it's all, you know, I'm going to go home. But he's saying he's trying to reason through like, it's okay. I'm going to – you know. I, but, but that's just my perception of the little prince. Can we assume that the pilot is rescued shortly after the prince dies? I assume leaves? so. How dare you say the D word? Uh, well, um, at least. He, but, but I was just wondering, is, is it also one well, of those cases? Well, he fixes his plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, so he's. So he goes off, yeah. He's off, so he's But fine. I don't think the pilot would have left him. No, 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 no. I'm saying that the that the prince knew that the pilot was going to be safe. Oh, and okay. And he left because he knew that everything was going to be okay. Yeah, potentially. Like he didn't like he didn't just up and leave him 
like it was the reason he, he left him because he felt he had to return home, but he wasn't leaving in a way that was he didn't mean any harm to the pilot. Yeah, he wasn't like I'm sorry, you know, them's the brakes. I gotta go. See you around, Perhaps. maybe. Yeah, you know, it was like in his mind he knew the pilot was going to be okay, and and um, now the narrator himself, the pilot has something more to search for. You know, like. Mm-hmm. Is he going to be, not that he's going to spend his whole life trying to find the prince again, but like, you know, does this, does this inherently change him in a, in a way or does it give yeah. him something else to think about? It's funny you brought up the biblical uh, <laughs> parallels before I did. I was Parallel, like, that's the word I'm looking for. You did. I'll bring it up. Uh, because I did see some sort of Christian imagery here as well, um, specifically, you know, with the well seeming to to fulfill more than just you know their their um, bodies, but certainly their spirits as well. Uh, and you know, there's some connections there, uh, and and then the snake, which we can talk about later. But it's sort of an idea with the prince that he doesn't belong here. You know, just like we human beings, uh, we're aliens in this current nation and we belong somewhere else. This is just me. I will, I'll get off my, my little Christianity box now. But, you know, he doesn't belong here on Earth. And I think while he does have that friendship with the prince, that home, I think, trumps friendship. Uh-huh. So you said, you know, a little while ago that we see the little prince grow up throughout this like he learns from his experiences Um, meeting those people i think he learns a lot meeting the fox i think is a really big turning point for him and and the rose garden and everything and uh I, i think he realizes what's important and so while he values the friendship with the pilot i think he realizes that his asteroid is really where he needs to get back to and when he keeps saying the rose i need to get back to the rose the rose rose i think he loves the rose but i think you know the rose i think is sort of symbolizes or almost is a uh, synecdoche for because apart you know over the whole is the whole asteroid so the rose is like his version of home so i think that's why you know it's sad because he does have that friendship with the with the pilot but i think he has to go home is there something to be said about the fact that the snake is completely honest with him well he does speak in riddles to a certain extent yeah which is there a biblical parallel there well, Are we I going would Garden always, of Eden with this? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, because I was talking with my mom about that, too, about, you know, what she said, you know, do you think the snake represents Satan? And I was like, I don't know. Like, is that too on the nose? For, That's what you know, I was wondering, too. Yeah. And, you know, he's riddle. Like, at the very beginning, it's a riddle because he said, you know, I can help you. Um, if you need to get back home and even the prince and it's interesting the tone that the prince takes with him and he's like I you know why do you speak in riddles I know what you're understanding Um, I'd have to get the the direct quote from that but I felt like the tone felt like very eerie with that and I had to step back and think what is he saying and I'm like oh no the poison and everything but you know him being cross at the wall and everything is like you need to get away I'm you know I'm not ready for this but like the, the snake being so eager you know to send him home which I I think is is interesting but it'd be like a reverse garden of eden because if he's like an alien here on earth then that means like his little asteroid is sort of like is it it literally is and it's figuratively the heavenly body Mm -hmm. um so it's interesting that the snake is the one destroying his earthly body in order to go to like the heavenly um area um so i don't know if the snake necessarily represents that and i mean he's trying to help him 
But we get to this. I think we're leading into this now. Just mm-hmm. the ambiguity of the ending. Yeah. And the disappearance of the little prince. I see it as ambiguous because I don't know if he has gone back to his asteroid or if he has died. And I know two of the things, you know, the fact that his body falls noiselessly is one like evidence to something, as well as the fact that the pilot couldn't find his body. He leaves some 78, 79, 80. Here's the place, let me go on alone. And he sat down because he was frightened. Then he said, you know, my flower, I'm responsible for her. And she's so weak and so naive. She has four ridiculous thorns to defend herself against the world. I sat down too because I was unable to stand any longer. He said, there, that's all. He hesitated a little longer, then he stood up. He took a step. I couldn't move. There was nothing but a yellow flash close to his ankle. He remained motionless for an instant. He didn't cry out. He fell gently the way a tree falls. There wasn't even a sound because of the sand. And then he he, uh, flips forward to six years later. So he's telling this story six years from now. Right. He's trying to figure out what's going on. Like, he thinks about the prince. And then he says, of course, the print, like, he doesn't know what happened to me. He basically woke him up. He woke up. You're right. Like you said in the synopsis, he wakes up and he's gone. Yeah. He asks you to ask the question, has the sheep eaten the flower? Yeah. If we see him. You'll see how everything changes is after he says, ask yourself, mm-hmm. you know, again. So is this, this, the, yeah, is, is he being deliberately ambiguous with the ending so that we'll, we'll start kind of shifting the way we think about you know things like this or shifting our way we perceive the world yeah i mean easy answer is that he died and the sand covered up his body mm-hmm. <laughs> you know which, and i don't think which goes well, back yeah, to what i was saying about life of pi earlier <laughs> yeah like what yeah what happens with that yeah. which i don't think you know as a child reading it they're gonna think that he just went back to his asteroid you know yeah. But as an adult, you're seeing this, especially because of how sad the narrator is. And, it, you know, it could be sadness, obviously, because he misses his friend. And, you know, he would like to be sure that he's all right. But why are you asking if he's all right or not? You know, if there's there must be doubt in your mind. Yeah. It's concerning leading up to that moment how the little prince, like, it seems like a very, like, he's sad. And it's not just leaving the, the pilot. It seems like. Not really dread, but it just seems like, I don't know, it's hard to put my finger on the emotion, but it's, it's. I mean, it's at the very least, it's sad the way he's sort of moving towards everything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time, I have some hope because there's the idea of the shell, which is brought up a lot. Like even mm-hmm. the pilot, when he carries the little prince at one point, he says like, you know, he looked down at him and he realized he's just a shell. The little prince said, you know, I'm too heavy. I have to lose the shell and go back in or go back up to my planet, which, you know, you can totally get. There's gravity. You can scientifically explain this. Yeah. The fox, you know, and his secret is what is it? What is essential is invisible to the eye. Uh, and then it's only with the heart that one can see rightly. So it's the idea of, you know, what's important is is what's unseen so perhaps Mm -hmm. you know he may have died here on earth but in order to go home he needed to um so he could still be living he just had to sort of shed his skin like a or shed his shell like a um snake oh like he molted or something (laughs) well like whatever his shell thing yeah they 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 shed their skin which goes back to is it the phaedo What's the yeah the the, the Plato and the Socrates sitting around 
ends with him taking the hemlock. Oh. And they they have a long discussion about the soul. I, I'm pulling from 20, nearly 22 years ago, so you have to forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. Okay. Because uh, this was freshman year of college. And something about how this, the body essentially is just a vessel. Yeah. And that the soul is the important thing or something. It houses the yeah. soul. Like, it just, and I guess I'm bringing that up to, to point out this is a very old concept uh-huh. that goes back through, through religion probably as well and, and philosophy. That the idea that, you know, if his body is a shell, then maybe there's a release of his soul back up into wherever it is destined or to go or wherever it belongs. Right. Which happens to be his asteroid. And I, I, I think that your use of the word hope is a good one because that's that's the flip side of the very sad part of the ending is that he kinda hopes everything worked out and he kind of he holds to that. Right. Um you you hold to the story that makes you feel better. Yeah. Sometimes because you have to get through the day, you know, or you yeah. you have to go on and and but going on and feeling consistently sad, why not can feel consistently better? Yeah. Constantly better or something like that. Yeah, it is a classical and ancient idea that souls don't perish. Mm-hmm. Um which is often why like they believed ghosts would or spirits would appear, which you know pops up in literature and everything because like the soul obviously is someplace so if it's got to relay a message it can do that or whatever yeah. uh, and some people believe that uh it would go down and just like be in another person's body afterwards so that was good for warriors because they'd be like well that's okay my soul will live on oh, yeah, i will fight like, strong yeah and the concept of like reincarnation and those sorts of things, right? right absolutely yeah, yeah. all right so, oh tom tom yeah. were you sad at the end of this book i a little but not like not like giving tree sad. Yeah. See, which is uh, uh, another thing, you know, I guess I didn't mention this at the beginning about, you know, what I was expecting, but I thought it was going to be like a happy and joyful story. But yeah. um, it's like, it's more, I mean, to a certain cute. extent, yeah, but it's not. It's not. Yeah, I, know I it's mean, not. there are those moments, but like it's, it's. A, I mean, there are serious moments and, and thoughtful mm-hmm. moments and then it gets pretty melancholy at the end. I said it reminded me of another, I, I, I'm... <laughs> I I had like I just found it interesting you picked and I'm, I know we've been talking about whether or not it's a children's book but and and I made a I made a joke in Emily Middleton's direction because she's a uh, she's a librarian so she'd be responsible for cataloging this yeah but there is another children's book that has an ending that is very sad yet at the same time very happy and that's Charlotte's Web is where, that what you're picking no. Um, oh, <laughs> not not this time. But yeah, that it, okay. that that was that was the that was the if I were going to pick a children's book for this podcast, or if and when I picked the children that sort of book for this podcast, that would probably be the first book I thought of because it's one of my favorite books. But Charlotte dies at the end of the you know she dies at the end of the book, and I can't remember the girl's name. But like you, but but then she has all these um, babies. Yeah, and. You still have Wilbur, and you still have yeah. Templeton, and, and all the other characters are there. So, the, in within this sadness of yeah. her death, is there's a lot of there's there's life, and there there's hope, and there's there's things will go on, and, and we're going to be happy, and we're going to live the rest of our lives. And in the if he does die in the end of this, he the pilot gets something out of this, 
and not selfishly like he wonders about this kid and and and, yeah. and what he has seen and and feels fundamentally different i think mm-hmm. and and there's something to be said about the effect the prince has on him for yeah. you know the six years since he you know first since he had the encounter do you think the prince tamed the pilot in some regard yeah yeah i mean taming is like an animalistic word but i was just thinking about it yeah if he, he is as connected as you say mm-hmm. he definitely brought back some of his um his innocence in a sense yeah and Am I completely off on that? I mean, what are you? No, I, I no, I agree with you. Yeah. I'm sad now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I don't even know where to go from here. It's like we should have started with this and gone off. <laughs> oh, that's well, that's the little prince. I guess maybe I'll open my book to page two and look at the funny <laughs> little drawing again because it all goes back to that little the elephant in the bow constrictor. Yeah. You know, I thought of like a really dark slash ironic thought is like. Uh, where I think we're in the wrong ecosystem, but what if the snake was a boa constrictor and it ate the little prince? I had that I had that thought briefly because of just the fact that there was a snake at the beginning and the snake at the yeah. end. It's yep. drawn to look like a cobra. Yeah, that's what I thought, right? especially at the wall. Yeah, but at the same time, that would be way too like once again, that would be way too just hit hit it on the head sort of yeah. too easy that would be too easy i think it'd be like cheap in a sense actually yeah i think it'd be like way dark too darker than oh. this has seen yeah terribly that dark. would be like uh he all of a sudden sent exuberi like hopped the ship and decided to go like this is how it is yeah. I, I i can't see it happening yeah. but i just thought like ooh. I think it's the wrong ecosystem, too, so we can take um, Saul's okay. back to Okay, all right. So if you're blue like us, you can always turn a page two and look at the little elephant stuck inside the boa constrictor, because that yes. makes me laugh. Well, do you have any th- other thoughts? No, I don't. Um, no. But this is worth talking about, though, and I think it's I, well, because... I think so. It's, I think it's because it took us in a totally different direction than we than no, we, we had. Yeah, too. yeah. So, yeah. and that that's the thing that that's what I I think is really valuable. Yeah. About it. I, yeah, I can't wait to hear if people write to us because I've heard from several people that this is their favorite book. Oh, cool. So, like, I I really want to hear their perspectives and yes. and um, what they think about what we have yes. said and such. So. Yeah. And speaking of people writing in, we actually have some feedback, so thanks in advance. Uh, first up, we have from Mario Reyes. Tom, why don't you take this one? Uh, hey, Stella and Tom, because alphabetical. Thank you. First, great inaugural episode. Since I first heard the trailer for the podcast, I started looking forward to it. Now that the first one has dropped, I can honestly say that I was right in my excitement. A change from what you guys usually do as far as podcasting is concerned, but one that you obviously both are comfortable with. With as many podcasts as I listen to, I'm not someone who sends a lot of emails, but I figured I'd send you guys one, not just because I enjoyed the episode, which I did, but because I haven't actually read a book in months, and I now have the bug again, which I'm not complaining about. But I don't want to make this email too long, so I'll, ha- I'll leave it at this. Great episode. Looking forward to the next. Kind of wish it was more than once a month. Mario. You know, that that makes me feel good. I love the fact that we got somebody reading something. That you is know? always good. That's great. Yeah, if only our students would be like, Mario! I know. I know. It happens every once in a while. Mm-hmm. I get a student to read a book, and they're like, I want to read another one. I'm like, go ahead and read this. Okay. That sounds nice. Every once in a while. <laughs> uh, we also have from Burt Ward's little brother, Robert Ward. 
Uh, he says, Dear Stella and Tom, thank you, the way it should be. I had never read The Glass Menagerie before. In fact, my experience is like Tom's. I've heard of Tennessee Williams and heard the titles of those three plays, but I've never read any, though I had seen Brando's Streetcar some many years ago. Luckily, though, I love the play, even if I cheated and watched the Catherine Hepburn TV play than actually reading it. The Glass Menagerie hit surprisingly close to home. I found Tom and Laura extremely relatable and saw aspects of myself in them. I often yearned for an escape and frequently escaped momentarily via films, but at the same time and crippled by insecurity and my own introverted nature. I admit it, I even got a little emotional while watching it play out. The play was immensely tragic, yes, but I also saw a certain hopefulness. Seeing a part of myself in Laura, I fell in love with Jim and his attempts to boost her self-esteem. It'll be interesting to revisit the play in written form to see the alternate take of Jim slightly leading her on, something I just didn't pick up on. Menagerie was just absolutely beautiful. The downside to all of this, though, is now with wanting to finally get more into John Steinbeck. I want to look more to Tennessee Williams, too. Curse you two. <laughs> you really gave a thorough dive into the work, and I'm going to have to revisit it again. I also love the inclusion of audio clips from that TV production with Hepburn. Nothing but amazing performances all around, but I'm pretty sure those closing lines by Sam Watterson and the music, it's, it's just going to haunt me for the rest of my days. I'll be looking towards the next episode. The only Maya Angelou I know is a few passing poems I've heard, and one in particular that has stuck with me alone. Until next time. Yeah. And, and uh, next time is not too far away. <laughs> he did email us, uh, I think it was a few days later or what, so I'll, I'll go ahead and, and read this one, and then, and then we can respond to both. Um, it took me a while for my last email, but I finally I came up with a new question for you. Uh, this one is kind of a non-brainer, but I wanted to make sure. What is your favorite first-time read of 2016? For me, I just finished The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, and it's easily the greatest book I listened to read this year. It was read by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who does an amazing job reading the book. The Bell Jar had been on my list for a while, and I'm only now getting to it, but so glad I did. Uh, If I had the money, I would buy copies of the book in bulk and forcibly give them to random strangers. It may be the under... It may be the underlying depression that transcends gender, but I just found Edith Greenwood one of the most relatable characters I've ever come across and simply fell in love with the book like I haven't any any other this year. Uh, can either of you point to a single book that you came across this year that would you force under others because you found it so good? First of all, on the Bell Jar, um, I haven't read, granted, I haven't read the Bell Jar in probably about like 19, 19 or 20 years at this point. I remember really enjoying it. Believe it or not, really enjoying it more than I enjoy Sylvia Plath's poetry, uh, which which I which I don't not like. Don't not like. Thank you, Lytotis. <laughs> but I did really enjoy the Bell Jar, um, <laughs> and it is. Like. <laughs> I really do appreciate the fact that, that Robert that you connected so well with the Glass Menagerie too, because it's it's just like we we sit down and and we. Um, we discuss whether or not we sometimes we discuss whether or not we teach the books yeah and there's so much we can get out of this um you know uh as for the little prince no we forgot yeah we did but we can we can i'm so sorry i've seen this used in french class not my french class because like i said i didn't take enough french in high school to have read this but because it's not a very very complicated book in terms of its um style like its reading level is not is not um incredibly high but this could be used. I don't know. I don't know. High school. You could use it in high school. I mean, what do you think? Middle school? 
Certainly elementary school, you could have this read. Yeah, I absolutely think that you can use it in elementary school. I think it would be great to pair it with the history class with like a World War II history class as like upper, upper level classes. So if you're doing like a push or something or American history, but you're doing in the, you know, the 20th century, I think it'd be interesting to have this and show the parallels there. Okay. Yeah, that makes, that makes good sense. You're just saying that. <laughs> you, I don't have anything to add to it. It was perfect. Okay. So, okay. So, uh, why don't you take the the question that Robert asked both of us? Uh, what was your favorite first time read? Yeah. Um, can you point to a single book you came across this year that you would force onto others because you you found it so good? So one of them, I'm going to give two. Uh, one of them is, I guess, a classical. And then the other one's more contemporary. And one of our friends is going to be super excited that I'm going to say the classical one. The Razor's Edge by W. Somerset Maughan. This is going to be hard to like describe in, in, in short words. But it's funny because the main character is someone who barely pops up. But it's all about when he comes back back and the interactions that he makes and the author somerset is actually like the like he's in the novel which is great it's not i as far as i know a true story but i'm sure that um some of his true life bleeds into it but it was a quick read i was actually like wondering am i gonna like this or not but when i picked it up like i could not put it down uh the characters while they each have their like individual flaws and some of them are more relatable than others uh it's just really interesting the journey that they go on as well as this main character quote unquote that is gone for like years at a time and then comes back and you like witness this change uh, or the changes that he undergoes and then how he influences others. Uh, it's just very interesting. Uh, and I know that that is a favorite of Rob Kelly, which is why I know that he's going to be super excited about it. I hope he's not pulling out his hair because I did a terrible job of describing it. Uh, the other thing is a contemporary, and it's called All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. And this takes place during World War II, so I guess it, it uh, makes sense. But it follows two different people. It follows Marie Lore, who lives in Paris, and she's blind. She's a young girl. She's like 16, and her father. Um, and it's when, like, the Nazis start to invade, and they're traveling, and they have, like, this special gem. And then on the other side, you have Werner, who is a really inquisitive young man, and he's really smart and is able to do, like, electrical things and put things together and then he's snatched up by the the nazi youth and he just like follows along just because he wants to like do these mechanical things and so it's like these parallel stories and then like they intersect in very interesting ways and you see Werner start to realize kind of what he's doing and what nazism is all about and get away from that and like become his own person but that that was one of those novels i think i mentioned last time that like strange they're like cultic cultic isn't the right word but like weird uh moments in school where there's a novel that's passed around by all these oh people. yeah 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 i guess it's more of a trend or it would be a better phrase for that or word and so this was one of them and so i finally read it so those are two that i think um anyone could potentially pick up and, and really enjoy i was just looking at the dust jacket for that book today in my school library because I, I was avoiding um, my last period class and uh, while they were doing their research or claimed to be I saw it sitting on a table so I, I was reading the description so just a coincidence I guess 
I, I I had to actually think about this because one of the I was like, oh, I know the book I can choose, and then I realized I read it in 2015. Um, uh, oh. So, but um, and and honestly, since I'm in the middle of graduate school, I'm like the understanding by design template for creating better oh, units. No. no. Um, oh no. No, I took. I had the fortune of taking a course about young adult literature this past semester, so we had to read 15 different books over the course of the semester, and each of them was from a different genre, and you just basically were assigned the genres, and you could choose the book within the genre. So there were some really fun books that I read, two that really stuck out to me. Um, one is a little older, one is a little more contemporary. The first one is called, uh, is, and you're probably familiar, or at least have heard of this, it's called Speak uh, by Laurie, I'm going to mispronounce this name, Laurie Hals Anderson. It's a very, very serious book about a girl who starts her starts her, her year in high school basically being ostracized because she called the cops on a party she had gone to toward the end of the summer. And it's slowly it's revealed as before you get to the middle of the book that the reason she called the cops was that she was raped at the party. So mm. this becomes the story of her keeping this secret and the guy who raped her stalking her in a sense because he knows what he did to her. And it it dangerously teeters on the edge of an after-school special, but never gets never goes full melodrama like that. And it's it's a very, very well done, um, vivid, vivid story. The other book is a book that you are sort of familiar with, Stella, because you helped me on a project I had to do. It's called Popular, and it's by Maya Van Wegenen. She is a girl who, at the time, was living in Texas in this, like, right near the border of Texas, and uh, found in her, like, dad's old or mom's old belongings this book uh, by Betty Cornell, I think her last name was, called uh, like basically the teenage a te- it was a teenage popularity guide from the 1950s so what she decides to do is secretly follow the advice given out in this book over the course of years this is nonfiction. um so it's a memoir of her entire year of it's like eighth grade or something and she uh she goes like through each month she chooses one essentially chapter of that book you know like beauty weight loss getting a job whatever and she follows the advice from this 50s book, and it's funny. She journals about it, and it's funny, and it's really witty, and it's touching in places because of the relationship she has with her friends, the relationship she has with one of her teachers. It's really, really clever, and at one point she she does... I mean, Betty Cornell, the woman who wrote the 1950s guide, writes the introduction to the book, oh. and it's... Um, it's and, and here I am, like, I had to basically do a, a memoir, and I pulled it from a book from like Yalsa or one of those organizations of like best books of whatever year and I think it was like 2012 2013 and I'm like okay I'll do this because it was a total different change in perspective from like what I would have normally picked in terms of a memoir you know and I was like really into this story about this teenage girl trying to become popular by following this guide I mean it goes way beyond its gimmick and and is really really worth worth reading and it was just like you know i was just like really surprised at how much i liked it so last year those were the two that 
were while they were for a class, they were not, you know, um, <laughs> my linguistics textbook or anything like yeah. that. All right. So I think that that'll do it. Um, we have one more thing to do. Yes. And that's where Stella correctly guesses what you're picking next week. You didn't think I was next picking. month. Okay. All right. Huh? Okay. I didn't think what? I hope you didn't think it was Charlotte's Web because it's not Charlotte's Web. Well, it was. No, it's not. Okay. It's not Charlotte's Web. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, are we going to count one, two, three, bam? Yes, okay. Three, two, one, bam. Three, two, one, bam. <laughs> three, what? Are you counting? Oh, you do it. Oh, okay. Three, two, one. Alice the in Call of the Wild. Oh, no. I was wrong. <laughs> the, oh, call, the Call of the Wild by Jack London. Uh, Why are you picking that, Tom? Because uh, it's about a dog. Okay. And it's it was it was on my list. It's it's on my list. I was, I had grabbed another book and I was like, oh wait, somebody dies in this. So I was trying to find a and I was trying to find a um a, a book that did not go back to the kind of the stuff that I've already picked. And I was like, all right, well let's let's try this one. So and it's it's on my it's on my reread list and I haven't reread it yet. So well, yeah, I know with Mario reading the or not Mario with Robert reading the bell jar and the little prince's ambiguity. I mean, it's all sorts of like sad, sad things. I just read the bell jar this year, actually. I enjoyed it, but it was uh, yeah, it was it was hard. Uh, interesting. I think, um, I think we'll eventually get around to the bell jar, though. Well, there we can have more life imitating art. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah, because you made an oven joke and I didn't get it. <laughs> in text, I was like, I'm reading the bell jar. Don't stick your head in an oven. No, I, I, like, said, I said, I probably said, make sure you preheat the oven. Yeah, and I was like, well, I'm sorry, what? So I didn't get it. I didn't even know until like know. I read the virgin suicides that people could die by an oven like well, that. I didn't you know. Don't die by an oven. Was a gas. You die of carbon monoxide <laughs> How dare you? Poisoning. Why are you sounding so patronizing right now? You don't die by an oven, Stella. It is. The oven is causing your death. <laughs> Give me a break. Do how, I really how sound do we like even, that? How do we even end this episode? Because it's been down 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 <laughs> and now we're talking about suicide well yeah su 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 susan suicide isn't that something Susie, it's a studio no, it's a phil collins song i think it's su 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 studio no i don't think so it's Susie. Anywho. no it's oh. studio <laughs> you don't know you're your hey, you're the oh. one who i texted last night who said you hadn't heard anything by prince and i That's, still don't know whether no, or not to believe morning. you on that this is, this is this morning i really haven't actually Anywho, how do we close this? And until next time. She's leaving this all in. I know. <laughs> hey, put on a scarf and read. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, man. It's all a great mystery. For you, who love the little prince too. As for me, nothing in the universe can be the same. If somewhere, no one knows where, a sheep we never saw has or has not eaten a rose. Look up at the sky. Ask yourself, has the sheep eaten the flower or not? And you'll see how everything changes. And no grown-up will ever understand how such a thing could be so important. For me, this is the loveliest and the saddest landscape in the world. It's the same landscape as the one on the preceding page, but I've drawn it one more time in order to be sure you see it clearly. It's here that the little prince appeared on earth, then disappeared. Look at this landscape carefully to be sure of recognizing it. If you should travel to Africa someday, in the desert, 
and if you happen to pass by here, I beg you not to hurry past. Wait a little, just under the star. Then, if a child comes to you, if he laughs, if he has golden hair, if he doesn't answer your questions, you'll know who he is. If this should happen, be kind. Don't let me go on being so sad. Send word immediately that he's come back. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Do 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 do
Um, and oh, you, oh yeah, you did the outro, the pre-recorded outro. When does that go into this episode? Uh, that'll go after we do our sign-off. Are you sure? That's what I did with the last episode. Well, yeah, you're so the when you when you hit the end of the last episode, you'll hear us do our sort of you know goodbye, take care, blah blah blah, <laughs> and then I play a little bit of music, and then there's the outro. Okay. You're well, not, I'm not the boss. I was just telling you how I did how I did the last episode. You you're the boss, not me. Uh, you're the the beauty and the boss, and I'm the brains and the beast. Um, I I mean, we should introduce. Okay, I'll I'll do that. Okay, I'll um. What? Where were we? Spit it out, Baobab.